Good morning. What a joy to worship the Lord with all of you this morning. As I sing, I love looking around at those who are here, who share this faith and this hope, and it's a, a joy to see old familiar faces, people who have moved away and are back in town today, and brand new faces I've never seen. Thank you for worshiping the Lord together. As Greg said, please turn in your Bibles if you have them. To Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 19, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Do you ever wonder about what you're doing with your life? I mean, just in the day-to-day, mundane, routine stuff, you ever just kind of have this thought like, is this, is this doing anything? I think of Max in his mid-20s. He's active on Twitter, pays attention to local, national news. He sees all the craziness going on in this clown world, and his emotions fluctuate between fear about the future and frustration with it all. When he looks at his own life, he just feels pretty helpless, like, what can I possibly do to make any difference in this world? Or Rose in her early 30s, she's a busy mom, she has four kids under the age of six, hardly has time to worry about that world out there. Outside her home, she's busy enough with diapers and discipline and grocery and laundry. But for her, sometimes it's just the endless repetition of it all. It gets to her and she wonders, what am I doing with my life? Or Jake in his early 40s, his work is demanding and stressful. Yet for all the hours he puts into his job, he doesn't really feel deeply satisfied with it or fulfilled by it. It just seems to him pretty trivial and pointless. He knows that there are grand, eternal, spiritual matters, and he just sees a disconnect between that and his work. Maybe you can relate to one of those people. Like them, have you wondered, how can I live my life with purpose when the world's problems are just so big and and my life is so small, so insignificant? I imagine that the doubts and questions that must have been going through the minds of the Israelites, that generation of Israelites who were born and raised in the wilderness. Can you imagine that? You're born in the wilderness, you spend your whole life, childhood, teenage years into adulthood, wandering around in the wilderness. They must have wondered things like, what is God's intention toward us, really? Does God see us? Does God... Does God care about us? Is God good? What is our purpose? And is God ever going to do something about this situation? We hold that in mind because that's the generation to which the book of Exodus was originally delivered. And God graciously gave them this book to address questions like that. And our text this morning that we come to in Exodus 19 is at the heart of the book of Exodus. In fact, one author writes, the words that follow are sometimes described as the heart of the entire Old Testament. Really, everything else in the Old Testament, indeed, listen to this phrase, everything else in human history can be explained in terms of the covenant relationship described in these verses. Everything in human history can be described in terms of the covenant relationship described in these verses. That is quite a claim. That has to do with the meaning and purpose of your life. I agree with that claim. Everything in human history, including your life, can be described in terms of 
the covenant relationship described here. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able to stand with me out of our reverence for God and His Word, as we read Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy Word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word through which you spoke to the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai and through which you speak to us today and in which you reveal yourself, and your grace, and your glorious purposes for human history, and the meaning of our lives. And we pray, O God, that this word would dwell richly in us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 19, 1 through 6, assures us that God is unwaveringly committed, relentlessly committed to accomplishing his purpose for this world. His purpose in creation, the reason for which he made this world. God is committed to seeing that through and achieving that purpose for the world. And here's how I would summarize that plan. This is just one way to sum it up. God's plan is to gather God's people in God's place to enjoy God's presence forever. God's plan is to gather God's people in God's place to enjoy God's presence forever. In the very beginning, God's people, Adam and Eve, dwelt securely in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and there they enjoyed God's very own presence. When they rebelled, they were banished from that garden. And so the question that has been driving all of human history has been whether or not humans would ever be able to enjoy that paradise again. In Exodus 19, 1 through 6, is a resounding yes to that question. It assures us that in spite of human sin, I mean, we've, we've seen the Israelites grumbling and complaining against God. We've seen their unbelief unfolding over the past several chapters. In spite of human suffering, we've seen their affliction and suffering in Egypt as, as slaves there. In spite of all of that, God is graciously working to bring about his original purpose for humanity here on earth. God is acting and God is redeeming and rescuing and God is establishing a covenant with his people in order to restore paradise. God's people dwelling in God's place and enjoying God's presence. 
bringing those all together. And my aim this morning is to show you how that plan, that same plan that was first introduced and established in Eden and then renewed here at Sinai is now being fulfilled in Christ and his church. And that means you. If you are in Christ, your everyday life is part of God's grand purpose to manifest his presence on earth. That's the meaning of it all. If you are in Christ, your everyday life is part of God's glorious purpose to manifest his presence on earth. And so we begin with God's place. When we come to Exodus 19.1, we come to what one author calls a major seam in the book of Exodus. I like that, that thought. It's a big seam, noticeable, discernible. There's a massive scene change that's emphasized here in the text through numerous repetitions of time and location markers in the first two verses. I mean, listen to how repetitive this is about the time and the location of it all. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and where did they come? They came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped, where? In the wilderness. What did they do there? There they encamped before the mountain. It's a significant location. Verses 1 and 2, the text simply refers to the mountain, but the rest of this chapter will refer to this as Mount Sinai. That comes up in verses 11 and 18, 20 and 23, and that is the same mountain that is called elsewhere Mount Horeb. This is the mountain where God called and commissioned Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Exodus 3.1 says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is quite a designation. And it was at the burning bush that God had given Moses this sign. Do you remember that sign God gave to Moses when he was doubting and wondering How could this be? Who am I to do this? God answered Moses' doubts and fears with this promise. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What would be the sign for Moses? Not the ten plagues, although through that God revealed his glory to Egypt and the world. Not the Red Sea crossing, not the manna from heaven or the water from a rock or the victory over the Amalekites. Although God is revealing himself in all of those things, no, this is the sign returning to this mountain with the people of Israel to worship God there. That's the sign. I am with you. In fact, Mount Sinai is going to be the location, the setting for the next 59 chapters of the Pentateuch. That's Exodus 19 through Exodus 40, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. It all happens right here. This is a big scene change. Israel's going to be camped here for almost a year. God is going to appear to them in fire on this mountain. He's going to establish a covenant with them here. He's going to speak from that mountain and give them the Ten Commandments and give them instructions to build a tent called the tabernacle. And they're going to build that here. And God's glory is going to come down upon it. Some of the most significant events in Israel's history are going to happen right 
here. Geographic locations where formative events happen are incredibly significant in the history of a people. I think of like Plymouth Rock, where the Mayflower Pilgrims landed. Or Philadelphia, where the Declaration of Independence was signed and the U.S. Constitution was written. Or Tranquility Base on the moon, where the first human ever set foot on some celestial body other than the earth. Those are monumental locations. And Mount Sinai is monumental in the history and the formation of Israel. And that's our history, the history of our faith. But the events that happen at Sinai are significant for another reason. Throughout Scripture, mountains are a major theme. God is frequently described as dwelling on a holy mountain. Some of the biggest events in the Bible happen on mountains. Just think of Abraham going up Mount Moriah with Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice where God provided a ram as a substitute, or Elijah facing the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The importance of mountains first emerges all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 where God planted a garden paradise on a mountain. T. Desmond Alexander writes this, In Genesis, the elevated location of the Garden of Eden is indicated by the fact that a single river flows out of Eden, before dividing to become four rivers. The description, referring to Genesis 2, implies that the Garden of Eden occupies a raised position in the middle of the world. And in keeping with this picture, the prophet Ezekiel designates Eden as both the Garden of God, which we're most familiar with, what a lot of people miss, calls it the Holy Mountain of God. That's Eden. Another author writes, The fact that Eden was the original holy mountain explains the significance of God's choice of mountains as sites for his redemptive acts and revelations. Adam and Eve were banished from that garden on that mountain. And the way back to that garden was guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword in Genesis 3. But now the people of Israel have come to where? The mountain of God. So Exodus 19, these opening verses are just packed with hopeful anticipation. God has not abandoned his purposes for this world or for his people, but he's achieving his purpose. Next, consider God's people here. The significance of Exodus 19 is not merely the mountain, but the fact that verses 1 and 2 announce the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, verse 2. When Moses ascended the mountain in verse 3, God speaks to him and he gives Moses a specific message for the people of Israel. Notice how God emphasized his address to the people. He says, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. That repetition is emphatic. And God is referring to the patriarch, to Jacob, also known as Israel, Anchoring the identity of these people in God's historical, redemptive, covenantal work. These are the descendants of the patriarchs. The ones to whom God had appeared and with whom God had established a covenant. These are God's people. These are God's people who have come to God's mountain. Throughout the plagues, what did God say to Pharaoh again and again and again? Let my people go. These are my people. Let them go. 
When Israel was discouraged by Pharaoh's hard heart back in Exodus 6, God promised in verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will take you to be my people. You will be my people. I will be your God. That is the most basic summary of the covenantal relationship that God has established with his people, repeated again and again throughout Scripture. You will be my people. I will be your God. That's the covenant relationship. And now at Mount Sinai, God proposes an expanded covenant with Israel, and he does that by doing three things. First, he recounts what he has already done for them. He clarifies what he requires of them, and then he promises to bless them. That's the structure of every covenant. First, God recounts what he has done. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, brought you to myself. God initiates this covenant relationship with his people by working for their welfare. Before he's given them laws and commandments, before he's given them sacrificial instructions or instructions on how to build the tabernacle, God has already been working for them. A lot of people miss this. They think old covenant was all law, new covenant is all grace. Israel was saved by grace. Before they ever obeyed God, before they even had God's law to obey, God had already been fighting for his people, providing for them in the wilderness, carrying them on eagles' wings, bringing them to himself. This is the way that God always relates to his people. First, he saves, and then he sanctifies And then God says in verse 5, he states what he is going to require of Israel in this covenant relationship. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Israel's salvation was, to be clear, completely unmerited, unearned undeserved. They didn't work for it. It wasn't a a reward that God was paying them back for services they had rendered to him, but it was conditional. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, God requires trust in his word and the obedience of faith and covenant faithfulness. Sometimes this gets taught that the difference again between the old covenant and the new is that The old covenant was conditional while the new covenant is unconditional. But but that's not accurate. The new covenant has conditions too. In fact, listen to how the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 28 through 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Old covenant, Mosaic covenant. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. The old covenant had conditions. There were blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. The new covenant as well comes with blessings and curses. But this is not what Israel has to do to earn their way into the covenant. God's establishing that. This is how they maintain that covenant relationship. I think of my own children. They do not earn their place in the family by their obedience. They are the chase kids. And I do require them to obey. 
because they're my children. I expect them to obey in a way that I don't expect the neighbor kids to obey me. I can't expect that of them. They're not my kids, but my kids, I do expect to obey because they are my children. When God establishes a covenant relationship with his people, he calls them to trust him and obey him. And then God lays out these incredible promises about how he's going to relate covenantally to Israel. He says in verses 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is going to be God's treasured possession. We have a clue as to the meaning of that term based on how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. In Ecclesiastes 2.8, Solomon says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. That's the same Word, Philip Ryken says this word refers to the most prized possession in a king's personal treasury. Imagine a king is wealthy, owns a lot of stuff, but his most prized possessions, that's what's meant by this word. And that describes God's attention toward and affection for his people. You will be my treasured possession, the unique object of my favor. God says they're going to be a kingdom of priests. This is the only place in the Old Testament where that phrase is used. It means God's purpose for Israel was that every person in Israel would enjoy both a a royal and a priestly status. Israel was to be a nation of priest kings. And that is another echo of Eden. That's what Adam was in the garden. He was the first priest king. He was created in the image of God to enjoy the presence of God on earth like a priest and to rule the world under God as God's representative ruler like a king. And when Adam rebelled, he lost that status, but his sin did not utterly thwart God's purpose for humanity. Here, God is promising that the Israelites, people who, keep this in mind, three months ago, they were slaves in Egypt. They didn't own anything. They had no status at all. They had no meaning or purpose. They were slaves there. And God is saying, you're going to be restored to the status of Adam as priest kings on earth through this covenant relationship with me. And God tells them they're going to be a holy nation. Holiness is best understood as exclusive and complete devotion to God. God is holy because God is exclusively and completely devoted to God. God is not an idolater. God does not have any other gods before himself. God's greatest delight is his own glory, which he displays for the good of his people. God is devoted to God. And likewise, the people of God are to be exclusively and completely devoted to God. A holy nation, a nation full of people who are exclusively devoted to God in their hearts and in their lives, which will set them apart from all the other nations on earth. But that distinction is not meant to puff Israel up with pride. They're meant to be a witness to the world who God is. Right in the middle of these, what could be read as incredibly exclusive statements about the people of God, my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God makes this global claim. Did you catch that in verse five? You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. I love the way one commentator says this. Israel is commissioned to be God's people on behalf of the earth, which is God's. For the sake of the earth, which is God's. No one on earth is autonomous or independent from God. All the peoples of the earth are God's possession. He owns them all. And all people owe him worship, praise, and thanks, and obedience. But no one on earth gives him thanks, or praise, or worship, or 
obedience. And so, from the midst of all the people on earth who do belong to God, God takes one particular family to be his treasured possession in order to make himself known to the world through them. God's election and his redemption of this particular people is not about their moral goodness or their ethnic superiority. It's about the glory of God's grace. It's not about their exclusive access that they're just going to keep to themselves. It's about God's desire to be worshipped by all peoples. So where Adam failed at Sinai, Israel is recommissioned as a kind of corporate Adam, holy nation of priest kings to extend God's rule and reign on earth. Finally, consider God's presence at Sinai. God's people in God's place without God's presence would be a disastrous tragedy. But this text is particularly filled with hope and assurance because God is there. Verses 2 and 3. There Israel encamped before the mountain. These, these words are just staggering. While Moses went up to God. Moses went up to God. Think about what that means. This is an echo of Eden again, where God walked in the garden and manifested his presence. Adam and Eve were banished because of their sin from God's holy mountain. And that driving question, will God ever again dwell with his people on earth? At Mount Sinai, we are assured this is still God's purpose. This is still what God's doing. Humanity's sin cannot thwart that plan. God will possess a people for himself and he will dwell with them forever. This was God's purpose in saving Israel. Verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. What was the aim of it all? I brought you to myself. Speaking about their arrival here, I have brought you to myself. That's the purpose of all the plagues. That's why God carried them and provided for them through the wilderness. I brought you to myself. And at Mount Sinai, God speaks. He speaks to Moses. He gives him words to deliver the people of Israel. God's word manifests his presence. God rules his people by his word. When God calls for covenant faithfulness and obedience, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice, which anticipates how God's going to speak from this mountain and reveal his righteous ways to them here. God's enduring presence in the midst of Israel is also implied in these promises he makes. You will be my treasured possession. I'm going to keep you for myself, with myself forever. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to me, enjoying access to my presence. So the presence of God on the mountain here before his people means God is working to fulfill that purpose. And for us, it gets even better. Like Adam, Israel also would fail to keep covenant with God, if you know the history of Israel. In fact, it's just going to take a few chapters before they build an image of God that looks like a golden calf and worship that. It's just like days later. But God sent his son to succeed where Adam and Israel failed, and as the better Adam and the true Israel, Jesus has established a new and better covenant and the true humanity of God. And now God's plan, which was first established in Eden and then renewed at Sinai, is guaranteed for us by the blood of Jesus. And it's to be fulfilled in his church. The church is now God's place. The church is the mountain of God. The prophets frequently describe God's saving acts on earth 
in relation to the mountain of God. I just want to point you to two places. Hebrews chapter 12 tells Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. The author there is talking about Mount Sinai and what's going to unfold there. Where have you, Christians, in the new covenant, where have you gathered? You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, something better than Sinai, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what you have come to. If you think, I wish I could have been there and seen that mountain smoking on fire and heard that voice, the author here is saying, no, you've, you've come to something so much better. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about the church, not this building, but the gathered people of God on earth. You have come to something better than Sinai. One other passage. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where Isaiah prophesies about the church. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is not describing heaven. It's describing nations who don't yet know God, who are turning to God and streaming to him. Where are they going? To the mountain of the house of the Lord. Where is that? That's the church of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2 was not fulfilled in the Old Testament. It's being fulfilled today in Christ and his church. The church is the mountain of the house of the Lord, established by God to be the highest of all the mountains where all the nations would turn to know God and encounter him and be taught his ways, to be discipled, as Jesus told us in the Great Commission. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. That's the word of God and his law going forth from the church. The church is God's people. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, applied the words of Exodus 19 to the Christian church. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He just takes Exodus 19 and says, that's you, church, which is a radical development in the saving work of God in history. It means that the people among whom and through whom God is manifesting his presence on earth are those who are in Christ. Means the words that God spoke to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai are fulfilled in you here in this room who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. John writes about this in Revelation, Revelation 1 5 through 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus has done it. What Israel failed to be, Jesus has established by his blood. He has made you a kingdom and priests to God. This is what the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing around the throne in Revelation 5. How do they worship Jesus? By your blood, 
You ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's you in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, enjoying access to the presence of God through Christ who opened up that way for you by his own blood. He has made you a kingdom of priests. By his death, you enjoy that access to God, and by his life, you reign in him enjoying freedom from sin and death. You are that holy nation, that royal priesthood, people for God's own possession. And the church enjoys God's presence, as Ephesians 2.22 says. In him, it's about the church, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells here amongst you. Manifests his presence in gatherings like this happening this morning all over the world. You are his people. God will be with you as your God now and forever. And through you, he will make himself known to the world. So whatever you spend your days doing, and however significant or insignificant that feels, however routine and mundane, however temporal and earthly and messy it seems, take heart. God is faithfully fulfilling his purpose for the world through Christ and his church. That means that if you're in Christ, you participate in this eternal purpose of God for the world when you participate in his church. And it means every single thing you do, you do what the church has said for hundreds and hundreds of years in Latin, quorum Deo, which just means before God, in the presence of God. In the face of God, everything you do, every diaper you change, every time you go mow your lawn, when you get up and you go to work and you just pump out widgets, it's all in the presence of God because you are royal priests on earth. God is manifesting his presence and his glory and the witness you bear when you testify to Jesus and the glory of his gospel in your life with people who don't know him. Through that, God is saving sinners and bringing them in to his kingdom, the highest of all the mountains on earth. Christ would be praised forever. So you can live every day of your life with this joy and this confidence and this this humility. Why would he choose me? Only by his grace. He's made us his treasured possession and a kingdom of priests to our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would get glory in Christ our Savior and in his church. And we pray for the fulfillment of Isaiah 2 that the nations would stream to the mountain of the house of the Lord. That you would bring people to yourself. That you would put it in their hearts to say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways, that we may know him and walk with him. Use us, God, may our royal priesthood lives bear witness to Jesus every day. May may we live this week with just a greater awareness that it's all in your presence, that it's all by you and through you and for you and for your glory. So infuse us with this hope and this joy and this purpose that comes because, Jesus, you loved us. You bought us with your blood and you have made us a kingdom and priests to our God. May 
all the glory and the dominion be yours forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing.